Our primary reading this morning is from John chapter 4, verses 25 through 42. Would you listen now for the word of God? The Samaritan woman said to Jesus, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food that you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Then Jesus explained, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God, who sent me, and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest? But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike? You know the saying, one plants and another harvest, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather that harvest. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, He told me everything I ever did. So when they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. The word of the Lord. When I became an evangelical Christian as a teenager, part of the standard evangelical teen experience in the 90s and 2000s were going to these youth conferences that attempted to really hype you up for evangelism. Uh, Did anyone here ever go to Acquire the Fire? Oh, yes, we got like three. Okay, a four. Oh, all right. Y'all are going to be, you know me. Now, looking back, I find this conference title a bit of a misnomer because I'm not entirely sure what the fire was in reference to. Like, I think it meant that we were supposed to get fired up for evangelism, but a good chunk of the conference, if not the most memorable parts of the conference, were convincing us that everyone who wasn't a Christian was going to burn in eternal fire. And I'm talking about like special effects where like a car crashes on stage, you get like burning letters sent from hell, and there's like interpretive dancers that are like demons. Like, if you know, you know, right? Okay. So I don't know if it should have been acquire the fire or, or save them from the fire or scare them with the fire. But at the end of every conference, we were always sent out to some lucky suburb for some good old-fashioned door-to-door evangelism. 
And again, in retrospect, this seems like a terrible idea. Like you're sending these awkward teenagers to random strangers. And I think maybe they were thinking like, well, they'll look less intimidating than like Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons. Maybe they'll look at me and they think like I'm there to mow their lawn. And so they'll accidentally like open up the door because when they do, then I had my pitch, which was, um, uh, sir, uh, uh, if, if, you, if you were to die tonight, uh, would, uh, would you go to heaven or hell? Y'all, once they realized that I was not selling a set of Cutco knives for my college tuition, that is as far as I got in the pitch. So why did I keep doing it? Not just after this evangelism conference, but for the next few years with my non-Christian peers and friends. Because I knew they were going to hell. And I didn't want them to go to hell. And so I needed them to believe in hell so I could save them from hell. But what happens when you, the non-Christian, or you as the Christian, don't believe in hell anymore? Now, I should be clear that this is not an official belief here at Parkside. I know that some of you uh, don't believe in hell at all. Some of you are universalists uh, and think that eventually everybody gets to heaven. Uh, Most of us here, me included, still believe that there will be people who are reconciled forever with God and there will be people who are estranged forever from God, and that is effectively hell. But even for many of you, including me, we probably have made some major shifts about how we think about hell, say from when maybe we were an evangelical teenager to where we are now in our faith journey. Maybe you're a lot more humble about deciding who is saved by God and who is not. Uh, More people are getting in than just explicit Christians. Maybe you've been convinced that the doctrine of eternal conscious torment, otherwise known as ECT, is incompatible with the loving nature of God. And you've probably almost certainly gotten rid of the medieval Catholic notion that hell is about fire and brimstone and punishment. Now, you might think this is a continuation of the Hot Take series that we've been having over the summer, but this is actually Parkside's birthday celebration service. But every year, this is meant to be something of a State of the Union address, a moment where we are grateful for what God has done here, but also a a time where I, I take what I feel like God has put on my heart that we might offer a little bit of a course correction, something that we could do or not do as a community now that might not seem like much of a problem in the short term, but that over the long term might unintentionally sabotage the work of the Holy Spirit, that it might siphon off a little bit of the glory of God, that it might rob us of the good things that Christ wants to do here among us. So I accidentally got in this awkward conversation with a very conservative Christian this week, and and it was accidental because I didn't know that's what they were, and so I was just you know, just talking about Parkside, and, and I was just saying how much I love you guys, and talking about, oh, we're this church, we're open and inclusive, and, and, and sharing all these things, and I just saw this, like, pained expression on her face, like, knowing of our existence gave her constipation, right? That, that was the look, and instantly her first question was, well, are you growing? 
Why was that her first question? Because here's something I've noticed historically that intersects with this issue of hell and evangelism and more progressive churches like Parkside. Progressive churches are not a new phenomenon. And progressive churches don't last long. Throughout history, especially since the Protestant Reformation, more progressive, inclusive, open-minded, justice-minded churches have constantly popped up across the landscape. And they constantly stagnate, decline, or die off altogether. Now, there's not a singular reason for this, but I know what I was taught, and I probably know what this conservative Christian was taught as well. You let the feminists and the queer folks into your church, and then it's over, right? Just, you're done, get the undertaker, your church is now going to decline. Meanwhile, liberal Christians will say, oh, no, we have an explanation for this decline. It's just because of lower birth rates in our, in our communities. Or some have even gotten this great martyrdom complex where they say it's because we are standing up for justice and equity so much that white supremacist, middle-class America doesn't want to hear the truth. And that's why we're small. But here's my theory on the primary culprit. When progressive churches jettison the belief in a hell of eternal conscious torment for non-Christians, they also jettison their motivation to share the gospel with non-Christians. In other words, if you stop believing in hell, you stop evangelizing. And if you stop evangelizing, you start declining. I would offer that this explanation is the most consistent with historical data. And if that's true, then why will it be any different here? Once the excitement wears off, once it looks like we have enough people in the room on Sunday, y'all, it's a small sanctuary, it's not going to be hard to do. Once I, I feel so comfortably smug and how non-toxic and non-problematic my progressive theology is. And yeah, maybe we'll be fine for the next few years until one of our amazing staff moves on and we struggle to replace them, then what? Or maybe we'll be fine for the next 10 years until Gen Alpha just thinks I'm a boring old guy who still can't meme successfully, right? Then what? But we're just talking two decades here, tops. That's really not that long. What makes us think that we are so special that we are gonna be the exception to history? And look, normally I might say it's not about individual churches with a lowercase c surviving. It's about the church with an uppercase c thriving. I'm not really concerned with Parkside as a brand at all. Like if we ever get beyond two services, we're just going to gather people and send them out and start another church. So sure, if there are a bunch of progressive, inclusive churches that love Jesus 20 years from now, then yeah, maybe we don't even need to exist. But let me ask you, how many churches that are like that do you think exist in Charleston right now? Is that enough? Y'all, the church exists as a continuation of the purpose God started in ancient Israel that we saw in our first scripture reading this morning, Isaiah 49, 6, where God says, hence, I will appoint you as a light to the nations so that my salvation might reach the end of the earth. Now this is a beautiful purpose. 
But the strength of that light has historically brightened and dimmed over the course of history. And so it's possible that if we don't transmit ourselves to the next generation and we die off, the values that we believe in so dearly will die off with us. And then the church, with an uppercase C, will tragically resemble less of the way of Jesus. It will resemble less of the kingdom of God. And that light will grow dim. But maybe before we get to our primary scripture, we need to address just why preaching a little more hellfire isn't the answer for the lack of evangelism. And for that, I will just point to the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. Did you know that every sermon they give about the gospel, they never mention hell? Ever. Hell never factors in to Peter or Paul's public presentation of the gospel. They never use hell to motivate anyone to put their trust or allegiance in Jesus Christ. And look, the Apostle Paul was a pretty hardcore guy. He could have benefited from some therapy at some point. But even Paul is not using hell to motivate people to believe in Jesus. Then why should Christians today? So I'm critiquing liberal theology for most of this sermon, so allow me to say something that might possibly offend my evangelical friends. If my sharing of Jesus or the gospel includes any mention of hell, I am sharing the gospel unbiblically, okay? We need a more biblical methodology and we need a more biblical motivation. So let's take a look this morning at our primary reading from the gospel of John chapter four. In this story, Jesus has this pretty scandalous interaction with a Samaritan woman. She's not only a different ethnicity, she's from a culture that's mutually hostile to Judaism in the first century and Jewish culture, but she's also even of a different religion that broke off from Judaism seven centuries prior. But Jesus has this dramatic conversation with her. He like reads her mail and, and tells her that he is not only the savior of her, but all people. And so she's in. She's converted. She becomes a follower of Jesus and she begins instantly evangelizing. And so when we look at this scene, we discover that firstly, evangelizing is probably not what it, I think it is or have experienced it to be. And secondly, the biblical motivation for evangelism only has two simple components. So first, why isn't evangelism what I think it is? I think for a lot of us, we associate this word evangelism with telling people a whole bunch of complicated religious stuff and then telling them that they need to believe in that complicated religious stuff. But does the Samaritan woman do that in this story? No. She has no systematic presentation of religion. She doesn't even tell them that they need to believe what she now believes. What is John Recorder saying? Verse 29. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? Come and see. That's it. Y'all, evangelism does not mean, mean to preach to people. It doesn't even mean telling people that they need to become a Christian. 
Evangelism is from the Greek word evangelion, which just means good news. Evangelism is simply sharing something good that God has done or is doing in your life and saying, come and see. So I just want to give some of you an assurance today, because I know this is the point of anxiety for a number of you. If you don't feel comfortable with a bunch of theology or philosophy or Bible verses, you're fine. Truly, you're fine. That's not a requirement for evangelism. In fact, sometimes that can even be counterproductive. But if you've come into this community and you're enjoying it for whatever reason, evangelism is simply telling another human, hey, come and see. Now this leads us then to our motivations for sharing our faith. Because look, if hell was our primary motivator, and now it is no longer our primary motivator, either because I don't believe in it anymore, or I recognize it is unbiblical as a primary motivator, unless we replace it with something else, it's going to feel really weird to share our faith on any level. You see, I might be proud of what I believe, or grateful, or satisfied in those feelings, but those feelings will not in and of themselves compel me to share it. Again, this is why progressive churches historically decline. They're inwardly self-satisfied with what they believe, often to the point of smugness or quiet arrogance, but none of that really motivates an outward focus. But honestly, I don't think the replacement for hell as a primary motivation is a complicated one. According to this story, you only need two motivations that you are capable of articulating, and they are this. A subjective reason about Jesus and an objective reason about Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, again, let's go back to the Samaritan woman, verse 39. Many Samaritans came from the village, believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. The Samaritan woman had a subjective reason for wanting to encounter Jesus like she did. For her, Jesus knew her life story, knew her struggles, the good, the bad, the ugly, and Jesus simultaneously removed the social stigma of her past while giving her a hope for the future. This was this woman's personal reason, her subjective reason, for evangelizing. We all need something like this too. But what is so great about the subjective reason is that it's, well, subjective. So what do you like about Jesus? What has God done for you? How have you experienced a removal of shame? How have you received love or hope or healing? Because whatever that is for you, if it's genuine, it's, if it's natural, you as a compassionate human will be motivated for others to experience something similar to what you have experienced when they encounter Jesus. So there's a subjective reason that motivates us to evangelize. But we also need an objective reason. Here's why. My daughter absolutely loves Oreo ice cream with hot fudge, whipped cream, 
and rainbow sprinkles on top. Not, not chocolate sprinkles, rainbow sprinkles, okay? Adores it. Asks for it everywhere. But you know what? She has never tried to convince me that I need to have it. That would be weird. Because she realizes that her favorite ice cream doesn't need to be everyone's favorite ice cream. And also, that just means more for her. I once attended a Presbyterian conference where a workshop leader, a very nice, liberal, pleasant woman, um, shared that Jesus was her savior, but that he didn't need to be everyone's savior. In other words, Jesus was her Oreo ice cream with hot fudge, whipped cream, and rainbow sprinkles on top. Subjectively good for her. And maybe you can enjoy it with her, if you want. But that's it. And yet, look at the conclusion of our story, verse 40. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what you've told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. As Christians, we need a personal, subjective reason for being a Christian. But we also need an objective, universal reason for being a Christian. Jesus can't just be the ice cream. He needs to be, as he says of himself, the bread and water of life. There has to be a reason that isn't just true for you, but true for everyone. Not just your savior, but the savior of the world. Now I know my more progressive brothers and sisters in here, that's gonna be a harder one. I get it. We've seen religious people be so intolerant so certain with their beliefs that they're on this self-righteous mission to make everyone believe what they believe and you don't want to be that person. Now, to be honest, I don't know why you're worried about being that person. I'm not worried you're going to be that person. I think you're a lovely person. But even then, can you allow me two rejoinders to this concern? First, There's a difference between certainty and confidence. To believe that Jesus has done something universally, objectively good doesn't mean you start jamming it down the throats of other people because you still have humility. You still have doubts. You're not asked to be certain. Dare I say it, I don't know if you should be. And what's more, To believe that God has done something truly good for the whole world doesn't make you intolerant. It actually makes you inclusive. Because it means that it means that you believe that no one is excluded from the universal gift of God. Second, the objective reason for being a Christian doesn't need to be the same as mine or the person next to you. The work of Christ What Christians have said Christ has achieved through his life, death, and resurrection is so multifaceted 
that if I am struggling with one kind of objective truth claim about Jesus, then there's still a half dozen others that I can enter into. And so, if I don't know how I feel about Jesus undoing the spiritual debt brought on by sin, perhaps I can find confidence that Jesus is undoing physical death brought on by his resurrection. Or if I don't know how I feel that Jesus is with absorbing the justice or the wrath of God on behalf of the world, perhaps I can find confidence that Jesus has overcome the injustice of the world. If you can find just one, just one objective reason why you're a Christian, It will provide you a genuine motivation to share your faith and you will not be a jerk because again, I know you are a lovely person. So one subjective reason, one objective reason, one motivation for how God has changed your life and one motivation for how you believe that God is changing the world in a church as diverse as ours, those reasons will be very different. But the result will be the same. Like the Samaritan woman, you will go to the people you know and care about and say, come and see. Would you see this strange, beautiful thing that I have found out about Jesus and this community that is trying to follow him. Friends, the good news is that we don't need hell to make the gospel compelling. We never did. The gospel is compelling because the gospel is already good. And because the gospel is not only as good as we say it is, but better, people will respond. This is how this church will continue to flourish. This is how we will be the exception to history. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, Colin, we had a ton of questions. Thank you all very much for making my job easy this morning. Should we feel like people practicing different religions need to be evangelized? Okay, so this is going to be a weird answer. So the answer on, like, the simple answer is yes, because I don't want to feel like I'm dodging it. But this, this category of, like, other people and other religions or your religion, the gospel is literally just a proclamation of what God has done. It's announcing an event, the Christ event, that there is a God who came, was incarnated, lived among us, died, and rose again. So the categories that you're operating with are not these categories of, I want you to stop being in that religion and come be in my religion. Like, I want you to join my team. That's not the categories that the first century Christians were working with. They're saying, God has done something. We're announcing this. Would you like to participate in that and respond to that? And so, yeah, we're... So the answer is yes, but the answer is that's just not how... 
I hope we should be thinking about it. And then even as I read that question, I'm like, man, as much as I want to be evangelizing people of other religions, I'm not even concerned like what the religion is. I'm also not concerned like I should be evangelizing myself. If I'm not evangelizing myself, if we're not evangelizing each other here, again, declaring the good news, um, then I think we're, we're, and we're only looking at those people outside, I think we've missed the point. Yeah. So sorry, that's a weird answer, but. <laughs> you said Paul and Peter didn't mention hell, but does that mean none of the apostles did? If no one did, how did the idea of hell become so prevalent? Yeah, well, this is a really long Bible study, but yes, you don't see it in any sermon preached in the New Testament, right, um, from any of the apostles. Now, did they have a conception of a final judgment? Yes, many of the disciples did. So if, them being good Jewish boys, they do have a concept at the end of time God is going to judge um, people for their deeds or how they relate to God. Um, there is judgment. Like, we're going to get to James, right? James has some things to say about the rich, right, and they're not nice, right? So there is a, a conception of a final sifting of all time, um, but as the primary motivator for how they understood what they were doing and why they were doing it, hell just does not seem to factor in at all. Otherwise, they would have preached it. All right, last one. It was easy to say, come and see, when Jesus was there in the flesh. Nowadays, Jesus isn't on earth in the flesh. How can we prove that the good things in our life are because of God and not a result of our own choices and actions? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there, I think there's two answers to this. One is, in theory, and the church hasn't always done a great job of this, the church is supposed to be the body of Christ, right? And the body of Christ isn't just like, oh, it's just because we're taking communion or just because we have worship. But the church is supposed to act in such a way that you see the goodness of Christ demonstrated in the life of the church, in the community, so that people, when you say come and see, that you actually, and I'm not saying like the whole church, right? There's, the church's got a whole bunch of messed up people in it, right? But there's an element of your community that you experience in church. Maybe it's your community group, maybe it's worship, whatever, where you're going like you can someone could see the goodness of God and that you could invite them into that and they would say you're right I recognize that there's something good here something that maybe is even beyond just human ability or human niceness um, so I think the church is supposed to be that in a way that Jesus was at the time right and then the second element of that is I think we can all find places if we if we if we have a self-awareness and we kind of dig down to realize that man I am not like just the self-made American dream like there's blessings in my life that I can realize that are a gift from God, that there's been mercy given to me that I do not deserve, and that I have not just earned everything by my, my hard work and my effort. And I think when we go back and we look at our lives, all of us can point to these places where we realize that we are the recipients of God's undeserved mercy and grace. And if we can articulate those, I think people can begin to see, okay, yeah, there is some God in their life doing some work. And I would actually like to be bold enough to mention a story and brag on pre-Parkside. This was back when we were just young adult wine and cheese Bible study. And uh, so six years ago, I was paralyzed, totally paralyzed from the chest down plus half my face, struggling to breathe. And I was in the hospital for a month and every day my friends showed up, every single day. And between my Parkside, well now Parkside, and it was just wine and cheese Bible study friends, and my volleyball friends, I was never alone. That summer, um, I met a lady who had the exact same rare disease, and she didn't have a community like that, and she didn't walk for three years. The only difference in my mind is that I had this community that prayed on me, that laid hands on me, that was there for me every day doing the hard work, cleaning puke out of my hair, calling 
clean puke out of my hair. Good times. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the work that this community does. And as we grow and as we've grown, I just want to challenge everybody to continue to be that community for each other because it really does make a difference. Yeah. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah.